Chapter 12 of Headlong Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 12 The Lecture. Physiologists have been much puzzled to account for the varieties of moral character in men as well as for the remarkable similarity of habit and disposition in all the individual animals of every other respective species a few brief sentences perspicuously worded and scientifically arranged will enumerate all the characteristics of a lion or a tiger or a wolf or a bear or a squirrel or a goat or a horse or an ass or a rat or a cat or a hog or a dog and whatever is physiologically predicted of any individual lion tiger wolf bear squirrel goat horse ass hog or dog will be found to hold true of all lions tigers wolves bears squirrels goats horses asses hogs and dogs whatsoever now in man the very reverse of this appears to be the case for he has so few distinct and characteristic marks which hold true of all his species that philosophers in all ages have found it a task of infinite difficulty to give him a definition hence one has defined him to be a featherless biped a definition which is equally applicable to an unfledged fowl another to be an animal which forms opinions than which nothing can be more inaccurate, for a very small number of the species form opinions, and the remainder take them upon trust without investigation or inquiry. Again, man has been defined to be an animal that carries a stick, an attribute which undoubtedly belongs to men only, but not to all men always, though it uniformly characterizes some of the graver and more imposing varieties, such as physicians, orangutans, and lords in waiting we cannot define man to be a reasoning animal for we do not dispute that idiots are men to say nothing of that very numerous description of persons who consider themselves reasoning animals and are so denominated by the ironical courtesy of the world who labor nevertheless under a very gross delusion in that essential particular it appears to me that man may be correctly defined an animal which without any peculiar or distinguishing faculty of its own is as it were a bundle or compound of faculties of other animals by a distinct enumeration of which any individual of the species may be satisfactorily described this is manifest even in the ordinary language of conversation when in summing up for example the qualities of an accomplished courtier we say he has the vanity of a peacock the cunning of a fox, the treachery of an hyena, the cold-heartedness of a cat, and the servility of a jackal. That this is perfectly consentaneous to scientific truth will appear in the further progress of these observations. Every particular faculty of the mind has its corresponding organ in the brain. In proportion, as any particular faculty or propensity acquires paramount activity in any individual, 
these organs develop themselves, and their development becomes externally obvious by corresponding lumps and bumps, exuberances and protuberances, on the osseous compages of the occiput and sensiput. In all animals but man, the same organ is equally developed in every individual of the species. For instance, that of migration in the swallow, that of destruction in the tiger, that of architecture in the beaver, and that of parental affection in the bear. The human brain, however, consists, as I have said, of a bundle or compound of all the faculties of all other animals, and from the greater development of one or more of these, in the infinite varieties or combination, result all the peculiarities of individual character. Here is the skull of a beaver, and that of Sir Christopher Wren. You observe in both these specimens the prodigious development of the organ of constructiveness. Here is the skull of a bullfinch and that of an eminent fiddler. You may compare the organ of music. Here is the skull of a tiger. You observe the organ of carnage. Here is the skull of a fox. You observe the organ of plunder. Here is the skull of a peacock. You observe the organ of vanity. Here is the skull of an illustrious robber who, after a long and triumphant process of depredation and murder, was suddenly checked in his career by means of a certain quality inherent in preparations of hemp, which, for the sake of perspicuity, I shall call suspensiveness. Here is the skull of a conqueror, who, after overrunning several kingdoms, burning a number of cities, and causing the deaths of two or three millions of men, women, and children, was entombed with all the pageantry of public lamentation, and figured as the hero of several thousand odes and a round dozen of epics, while the poor highwayman was twice executed, at the gallows first and after in a ballad sung to a villainous tune. You observe, in both these skulls, the combined development of the organs of carnage, plunder, and vanity, which I have separately pointed out in the tiger, the fox, and the peacock. The greater enlargement of the organ of vanity in the hero is the only criterion by which I can distinguish them from each other. Born with the same faculties and the same propensities, these two men were formed by nature to run the same career. The different combinations of external circumstances decided the differences of their destinies. Here is the skull of a Newfoundland dog. You observe the organ of benevolence and that of attachment. Here is a human skull, in which you may observe a very striking negation of both these organs, and an equally striking development of those of destruction, cunning, avarice, and self-love. This was one of the most illustrious statesmen that ever flourished in the page of history. Here is the skull of a turnspit, which, after a wretched life of dirty work, was turned out of doors to die on a dunghill. I have been induced to preserve it, in consequence of its remarkable similarity to this, which belonged to a courtly poet, who, having grown grey and flattering the great, was cast off in the same manner to perish by the same catastrophe. After these and several other illustrations, during which the skulls were handed round for the inspection of the company, Mr. Cranium proceeded thus. 
it is obvious, from what I have said, that no man can hope for worldly honour or advancement who is not placed in such a relation to external circumstances as may be consentaneous to his peculiar cerebral organs. And I would advise every parent who has the welfare of his son at heart to procure as an extensive a collection as possible of the skulls of animals and before determining on the choice of a profession to compare with the utmost nicety their bumps and protuberances with those of the skull of his son if the development of the organ of destruction point out a similarity between the youth and the tiger let him be brought to some profession whether that of a butcher a soldier or a physician may be regulated by circumstances in which he may be furnished with a license to kill as without such license the indulgence of his natural propensity may lead to the untimely rescission of his vital thread with the edge of penny cord and vile reproach if he show an analogy with the jackal let all possible influence be used to procure him a place at court where he will infallibly thrive if his skull bear a marked resemblance to that of a magpie it cannot be doubted that he will prove an admirable lawyer and if with this advantageous confirmation be combined any similitude to that of an owl very confident hopes may be formed of his becoming a judge a furious flourish of music was now heard from the ballroom the squire having secretly dispatched the little butler to order it to strike up by way of a hint to mr cranium to finish his harangue the company took the hint and adjourned tumultuously having just understood as much of the lecture as furnished them with amusement for the ensuing twelvemonth in feeling the skulls of all their acquaintance. End of chapter 12